What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Hi, Carrot. It's Mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel, and I love you. Okay. I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. A totally innocuous-seeming voicemail from Mom can sound completely terrifying in the right context. And if that context is the new film from Ari Aster, the director of Hereditary and Midsommar, then yeah, terrifying. Aster's latest Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix, is in theaters now. We've got a review, plus our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. It's all ahead. Uh, Adam, your, your mom's on the phone. On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, Ari Aster has made three pretty high-profile features, 2018's Hereditary, 2019's Midsommar, and the new Bo is Afraid. Yet somehow, this will be the first time that we've talked about one of Astor's films together on the show. Yeah, you've left me alone on these for the first go-around with them, at least. I did recommend Hereditary back in 2018, and then Midsommar brought in two guests for that one, for that review. Tasha Robinson and Angelica Jade Bastian joined me. I think our audience was probably better served by those guests for (laughs) Midsommar. And it certainly wasn't by design, even though I was a little mixed on Hereditary. I I really wasn't afraid of Midsommar. But now that I've considered both films, Josh, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. We'll see if I'm in a different spot with Aster's latest. We will have some thoughts on Bo is Afraid, but we have... A lot of stuff to get through on the show before we get there. You caught up with the latest from Romanian director Christian Munju. That's called RMN. We also have some best of Ari Aster poll results and a new summer movies poll, along with some information about the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival. Great lineup there. All of that is coming later in the show. The bulk of this episode, Josh, is going to be devoted to the career of Bo is Afraid's mercurial star. We've got our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. First, though, a brief reminder to help us reach new listeners by leaving a rating and a positive review of the show. We want to thank Greblet in Canada and Big Run Mark. Both left some kind words for us on Apple Podcasts this past week. Grublet writes, listen for the weekly reviews, stay for the marathons, March Madness, and famous scene reenactments with truly terrible accents. Thank you very much, Grublet. And yeah, Massacre Theater, it's been on hiatus during Film Spotted Madness, but it's coming back next week, whether Grublet likes it or not. Sounds like Grublet likes it, so that'll be good news. Please do share your rating or your review on Apple Podcasts. You can also do it on Spotify or really wherever you listen to podcasts. We are ready to dive into this top five. Look at our favorite performances by someone who is one of the best actors, if not the best actors working today. We do have one disclaimer. We're setting aside one film that would have definitely made both of our lists, one performance by Joaquin Phoenix. And that's not because it's been talked about a lot over the course of the show's history. It's actually because we're going to be talking about it coming up. Yeah, we have our next bonus show for film spotting family members focusing on her 
the 10-year-old. It's the 10th anniversary of Spike Jones's Her, believe it or not. So that was one reason we wanted to revisit it. Also, considering Joaquin Phoenix for this top five and with Bo is Afraid, we thought it'd be another good chance to take a look at Her. And of course, we're living right now not only in the age of AI, but chat GPT. So that plot is going to have a lot of resonance for us, I think. And we will be spending a fair amount of time talking about Phoenix's performance in her. So we are setting that aside, putting it in the penalty box for this list. Officially, though, I think we can say, Adam, it would be on both of our lists otherwise. Yes, one of his best performances as Theodore in her, without a doubt. Let's get into our list, though. I can't wait to hear what you've got at number five. All right. I am going sort of back to the beginning. With Jimmy Emmett from To Die For. Now, Phoenix had been in a number of pictures before, so this isn't exactly his first or second role even, but it was his breakout. Gus Vincent's 1995 satire about fame and celebrity. Phoenix's Jimmy is one of the high schoolers who falls under the spell of Nicole Kidman's aspiring TV reporter. She seduces him, manipulates him into killing her husband. Couldn't you just get a divorce? And and then we get the car, Joe. And he'd get the car. And he'd take Walter from me. He'd take Walter. Listen, uh, I know you think I'm just a kid, but I could never do anything bad to you. Or or ever hurt you. A guy that does that to someone like you doesn't deserve to live. That's the truth, he doesn't deserve to live. What's interesting to me about this performance, especially looking through the lens of the rest of Phoenix's career, is that right from the start, he had no interest in audience sympathy, did not seem like something that he cared about, was on his radar at all, yet he nevertheless gets it. Somehow in this this character, we do have a bit of sympathy for Jimmy Emmett, even though he's a messy kid making bad decisions. Phoenix brings that out in us while being completely committed to those more negative aspects of the character. I did turn to social media uh, to help me make some of these other Phoenix performance picks just to see beyond her, you know, and some of the other obvious ones, what people's favorites were. And I got a few interesting responses when it came to Jimmy Emmett here, a few people who also picked it. Adam Rupert touched on this audience sympathy quality on Facebook, said that scene where he's shaking so bad while being questioned by the police, heartbreaking. And then over on Twitter, Marissa Jude, she's at Marissa Jude here said, Phoenix reminded me of Juliette Lewis's performance in Cape Fear, the exquisite and nuanced expression of vulnerability and desire that seems unteachable. Well said by both. I love that comparison to Juliette Lewis, also one of those just deeply uncomfortable, unsettling breakout performances from Mm -hmm. a younger performer. And I think it does apply to what Phoenix is doing here as Jimmy Emmett in To Die For. An honorable mention for me, one that was a strong contender for my top five. And you're right, the performance that surely put him on the map for a lot of viewers, put him on the map for me. Now, I had seen him first as Leaf Phoenix then in Space Camp in the mid-80s, <laughs> but I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention then to him as someone who I thought would be one of the best actors of his generation. But 
you're correct and the listener is correct that he plays a character who shouldn't be heartbreaking, but is. He's a killer. And we have to buy that he's going to make the leap he does as a character. He's naive, certainly. He's malleable. He's gullible in that way. But he doesn't seem overly dangerous. And for him then to get to that point where he is going to murder Matt Dillon's character, we have to buy that. And we buy it because Phoenix makes him damaged enough that you can go there as quickly as you do with him. But then he also plays him as an innocent so that he just becomes part of this tragic, manipulative web of Kidman's character. He's another victim in it all. I wonder if damaged is going to come up quite a bit on our list. That word, that's a good one that fits absolutely. My number five Joaquin Phoenix performance is the performance that earned him the first of his four Academy Award nominations. He did not win. We know he won for a performance that might come up later on one of our lists, Josh. This was his Best Supporting Actor nominated turn as Commodus in Ridley Scott's Gladiator. And I googled this just Gladiator Commodus earlier today to get a little bit of background on the real-life person that he was portraying. Not that it matters, but I was curious because I hadn't read anything. And this is the first thing that popped up. Commodus was a terrible ruler by virtually any standard. His fictionalized depiction as a mad emperor in the film Gladiator actually plays down some of his less believable excesses while giving him a nobler death. So so just keep that in mind, Josh, that that sniveling, conniving, evil little baby that Joaquin Phoenix plays is actually exhibiting some restraint. Yeah, yeah. He's underplaying it, apparently. He's underplaying it. We joke, I do genuinely enjoy the theatricality of the performance. I think it's a nice counter to the untheatricality of Russell Crowe's performance. We get one great moment I always see in my head where Commodus is watching a battle and there's a big blood spurt and he lets out this lusty response with his tongue hanging out, and he's kind of gritting his teeth and growling at the response. But in general, that character, the way Phoenix portrays him, is angstier than Robert Pattinson in The Batman and Adam Driver in any of those Star Wars movies combined. He is so quiet and deliberate. It's as if it's wrenching him to even speak. It pains him so much. And he's a weak character. He's more than that. He's evil. But Phoenix really does give him some dimension. We we see the emotional havoc it wreaks on him to be weak, to not live up to his father's image or to his father's expectations. And Phoenix amplifies, I think, his self-awareness. Even then, it was as if you didn't want me for your son. Oh, Commodus. You go too far. I searched the faces of the gods. For ways to please you. To make you proud. One kind word. One full hug. You pressed me to your chest and helped me die. Phoenix with Richard Harris there as Marcus Aurelius. One full hug, Josh. Press me to your chest and held me tight. That's that's all he's longed for. I guarantee you that Russell Crowe's Maximus is never saying the word hug 
in Gladiator, and we don't expect any characters to say the word hug in a lot of Gladiator-type movies. But when he says, all I've ever wanted was to live up to you, Caesar, father, you believe him. You really believe the emotional depth of that. I have not seen Gladiator since it came out when I liked it well enough. But it's interesting, you know, how careers have gone in terms of the stars and so forth. The reason I would rewatch Gladiator now is to reconsider that Joaquin Phoenix performance, just in terms of how his career has ascended. Russell Crowe's has mm-hmm. Russell Crowe's has tailed off, and you wouldn't think that. Yeah, I'm going to go look at Gladiator again for the acting necessarily, <laughs> but that is what still intrigues me, and maybe I'll have to do a revisit for that. All right, number four for me is Meryl Hess in Signs. This is Phoenix in likable mode in M. Night Shyamalan's alien invasion thriller. Likable mode is something he can do and does on occasion. Not very often, however, but it's kind of fun and rewarding when he pulls it out of his toolkit. I also like here how he effortlessly slips into what is essentially an ensemble piece. I mean, Mel Gibson is the lead, of course, but this is an ensemble drama in a lot of ways. And Phoenix comes in to do things You might not expect to lighten the mood, lighten the movie's edges a little bit. He just has a wonderfully light comic touch, and I think it's probably best displayed when he gives the response to Mel Gibson's long soliloquy about miracles or coincidences. This is a this is an occasion of Shyamalan, I think, also kind of undercutting himself and being aware of his grandiloquent tendencies with this soliloquy here. But then in comes Phoenix. Merrill has given this whole speech some, you know, probably not so deep thought, and he decides he's a miracle man. I was at this party once. I'm on the couch with a random beginning. She's just sitting there looking beautiful, staring at me. I go to lean in and kiss her, and I realize I've gone in my mouth. So I turn. Take out the gum, stuff in a paper cup next to the sofa, and turn around. Randa McKinney throws up all over herself. I knew the second it happened, it was a miracle. I could have been kissing her when she threw up. Meryl is the sort of part that this movie, you know, signs didn't really need Meryl necessarily, but because of Phoenix's performance, now, when I think about it, I can't imagine the film without him, you know, just because of the the contributions he makes and, again, the different vibes he brings to this film. Another fan of this performance is Aaron Bergstrom over on Twitter, at Aaron Bergstrom. He wrote, Phoenix is so often associated with playing weirdos, often dangerous ones. So when I look back at his performance as a well-meaning fella like Merrill, I appreciate how good he is at depicting loyalty and bravery. So, yeah, maybe a simpler character than some of the others he plays, but he plays it just right. He does very good in that scene. Very good in that film. Interesting that we've got back-to-back choices in which we hear Joaquin Phoenix whispering primarily, (laughs) talking very, very (laughs) quietly, different circumstances. And Meryl, not exactly an evil character. My number four, I've got another weirdo, definitely one of Joaquin Phoenix's weirdos. And you were talking about, him in terms of whether he plays characters who are likable or unlikable. This is one who I don't even know where to put him on that scale. And it's not because 
he's got things about him that make him someone that you really respond to favorably and even aspire to be like. That's not the case at all. But he also isn't so bad that you despise him ever either. He's just an immensely flawed character. And that character is Leonard Kratator in James Gray's Two Lovers. So multiple collaborations with James Gray. I'm going with his performance as Leonard in Two Lovers. What a trip down memory lane it was, Josh, reminding myself about this film, this performance, and the context around it. I had completely forgotten that Two Lovers, the movie, and this performance were totally overshadowed at the time by the shenanigans surrounding the filming of I'm Still Here, which would come out two years later, or actually just a little over a year later in terms of when we reviewed this film, Two Lovers on the Show, it was February 27th, 2009. That infamous David Letterman appearance was February 11th. 2009. So this hmm. was all in the wake of that. And people were really watching Two Lovers thinking it was Joaquin Phoenix's swan song from acting. It was supposedly his final performance as an actor because he was retiring to become a rapper. And with all of that, he had apparently completely lost his mind. So here, here's my hope that after some time off, uh, and I think you're taking a little time off tonight. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm hopeful that you will reconsider and, and come back to acting because you're just, you know, nobody really better than you are. Yeah. Oh, Thank you. Never say never, right? I don't, I don't know. Don't, you don't know what? I don't know, if I, I don't know what will happen. But you, you are, uh, you're not going to act anymore? No. Huh. Why is that? Mm, I don't know. I mean, so you have given it some thought. This will come up some more, but going through my notes, it was amazing as I look back on these different films that have been reviewed on the show, how many times I'd use synonyms <laughs> to describe his characters and movies. In this case, it was talking about a character who was always kind of floating through these scenes, disconnected from everything, that the movie itself has an ethereal quality to it. It's basically a fable. You could apply similar words and phrases to Bo is Afraid or to some of these other performances that we'll probably talk about. For those who don't remember Two Lovers, it's pretty much what the name suggests. It's a movie about a love triangle. Leonard is involved with two different women, one who really wants to take care of him and wants to love him, and he's too neurotic to let her do it. That's Vanessa Shaw's character. And then there's another woman who he wants to take care of. And she's the one with the issues in allowing him to do that. That's Gwyneth Paltrow's character. But there's a melancholy to Leonard that makes him endearing or certainly endearing enough. And there's an intimacy that Gray captures with Phoenix and these women that is really striking in the way Phoenix can often be intimate on screen and also make you a little bit uncomfortable at the same time. There's an intensity to these intimate scenes that can be both off-putting and something that also brings you in. And what really stands out about Phoenix 
in this role, but again, I'm sure many others we might get to, he's someone who's utterly uninterested in vanity. He, he has no interest in being cool on screen, and Leonard is not cool. And he also has no interest in being conventionally masculine, which is also one of the things that I think really does define Phoenix as a fascinating performer. He's, he's volatile, but the softer and the more vulnerable he is on screen, the more interesting he is. And that's certainly the case here with Leonard in Two Lovers. You'd think if I got to know you that I wouldn't love you, but I do know you. And I love you even more. I understand you, Michelle. I'm f up too. I will never walk away from you. Never. He left you. I'd never do that. I'd take care of you. Well, you went with the, the one Joaquin Phoenix, James Gray collaboration I have not seen, but I've liked the other two. So I'm going to assume you're right in this pick, Adam. I especially like him in the yards. I, I can still picture kind of his, his devilish face in that one. So yeah, these two have been really strong collaborators. My number three pick is with another filmmaker he has worked with twice now, and that would be Paul Thomas Anderson. Here at number three, I have Larry Doc Sportello from Inherent Vice. We've touched on a little bit his comedic abilities, and I think this is the movie of all of his that I've seen that puts them on display the most. This adaptation of Thomas Pynchon's comic gumshoe novel, it's set against the druggy beach scene of 1970 California. Doc Sportello is this hazy private detective just eking out a living of sorts in a beach shack just a few blocks from the ocean. And as happens in these sort of tales, he gets caught up in a rabbit hole of an investigation. Phoenix has so much fun with the curly Q noir dialogue here and the chance to play really this addled fool who's sometimes smarter than he's presenting himself and a lot of times not, <laughs> or or let's just say not in complete control of his faculties. And just watching Phoenix have fun with that is such a blast. So many of the laughs come from observing Doc trying to focus in the midst of these increasingly ridiculous conversations with all sorts of characters. And this includes Josh Brolin's Lieutenant Detective Bigfoot Bjornsson. Don't get up. Bigfoot and he smashed on my door. Come on. After a long and busy day of civil rights violations, I found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in just to check and see the current state of affairs at my old stomping grounds. Seeing as your effort to keep lines of communication had been limited, to say the least. Well, I've been busy. Trying to figure out which side of the zigzag paper is the sticky sign. This is not just a comedic performance, though. A few listeners mentioned when they made this pick some of the other qualities that uh, appealed to them about the performance. Andrew Bodenbach on Facebook said he's hilarious and ridiculous, but what really hits is how compassionate he is. He really cares about mm -hmm. people. I think you do feel that. And here's from Jeremy S. Wade at American Wade on Twitter. You just really want that poor son of a bitch to get a win. And this kind of speaks, I think, more to the you come around to his character's side so often 
despite all evidence to the contrary, that that's where you should be. And there's a little bit of that element here in Doc Sportello as well. Uh, It's also fun to think about this being the performance, going back to the idea of collaborations, this being the performance and the character that he and Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to explore together after working on The Master. So interesting choice. I don't want to get ahead of myself, so I'll leave that there. And I don't want to get ahead of myself either, Josh. So I will also leave Larry Doc Sportello right there and go to my number three, Joaquin Phoenix performance, a performance in a film that no one will apply the words fun to or blast to like you just did with Inherent Vice. But one connection, you've got Phoenix in your number three chasing down a missing girl in a complex conspiracy. And so do I. But Joe from Lynn Ramsey's 2017 film, You Were Never Really Here, is definitely not the teddy bear, the compassionate teddy bear that Doc Sportello is. And Joe suffers from something that Doc doesn't, which is severe trauma. So you've got a character who is all about repression and is all about withholding. Other than the blunt acts of violence that he carries out, he's not demonstrative. He's certainly not vocal. He barely speaks. This has to be the fewest lines that Phoenix has in any one of his performances. He's a big physical presence, like with Bo is Afraid. He put on weight for this role, and he certainly carries it. It's it's not a weight that manifests itself certainly in muscle or as if he's been hitting the gym a lot. He is someone who carries a big burden and needs a big frame to do it. And yet somehow Phoenix makes him feel like a ghost, like he's incapable of leaving a footprint. He's just moving through the world almost invisible to everyone around him. A line that has always stuck with me from that film is when a character says, and if I remember the context right, they're not using it negatively. I think they may need his skills. They say, I hear you're brutal. And Phoenix says, I can be. And something about the the kind of flat delivery of that, the succinct screenwriting there, just having him say, I can be, it's a case where Phoenix in the performance could indicate in that line reading or with some kind of physicality or something on his face before, during, after he says it, he could indicate that, well, he's not really a monster. He doesn't want to be brutal, but sometimes he has to be. And again, he's not someone who's interested in being cool on screen. He's not someone who's interested, it would seem, in indicating those things to the audience. He's he's willing to play Joe for exactly who he is. And his future actions, his choices will determine what we ultimately think of him. How many, Josh, Killer Seeks Redemption movies have we seen? <laughs> I don't know if we've done that top five before we probably have like assassins with a heart of gold or something. It's a well-worn convention at this point. And Phoenix gives any beat that might feel familiar, a completely different spin. He makes this character, Joe, a truly enigmatic one and that he makes some choices sometimes that are confusing or bewildering or troubling or, upsetting, but you don't ever actually question him as a man. And I think that's where the term damaged will come back into play here at least one more time. 
as a damaged man. That's the word that pops up here. I'm just pulling up my review, and I liked it a little less than you, um, but did appreciate how the filmmaking aligned itself with Phoenix's performance and the character's headspace, right? Lynn Ramsey using just a lot of impressionistic imagery, and I think of that, the haunting sound design as well. But yeah, I, I wrote how this is all geared toward evoking Joe's deranged, damaged point of view. So there it is. To see those picks and even watch some of the scenes you heard here on the show, you can go to filmspotting.net slash lists. He was 17. I was 18. We kind of looked at Jesse and called him slow. Today, you'd call him mentally retarded. They claimed Jesse raped and murdered a white woman by the name of Lucy Fryer. They put Jesse on trial and he was convicted by an all-white jury after they deliberated for only four minutes. We've got more Joaquin Phoenix talk coming up, plus our thoughts on Bo is Afraid. But first, we did want to acknowledge the passing of, and here the word legend seems too small a word, Harry Belafonte. The performer, actor, and activist was 96 years old. You heard him there in his single scene turn as Jerome Turner in Spike Lee's Black Klansman, his final screen performance. And it's it's a big scene. It's certainly a whopper of a scene. But we did get to catch a glimpse of Belafonte in Jordan Peele's Nope, even if it was just on the Buck and the Preacher poster on the wall of the Haywood residence. We also got a little bit of background on Harry Belafonte last year in Elvis Mitchell's doc over on Netflix. Is that black enough for you? Yeah, he was one of the, you know, there were a handful of talking head interviews for that documentary, but he was one of those who jumped out to me as just having a wealth of experience and knowledge and perspective across yeah. decades Unmatched, um, in this really. yeah in this in this survey of of uh, African American cinema and I don't know if I ever threw this out there Adam but I came out of that documentary with you know a long watch list but also I remember thinking we should do a Harry Belafonte marathon I think, you know, the filmography is not massive compared to some other figures you could pick. And just again, seeing him, hearing him there made me realize that, you know, an essential segment of cinema that I'm not all that familiar with, unfortunately. His debut was 1953's Bright Road. He was also in Otto Preminger's 1954 film Carmen Jones. That's an adaptation of the opera Carmen with an all-black cast. Dorothy Dandridge also in that film. 1972's Buck and the Preacher, which co-starred and was directed by Sidney Poitier. He was also in Robert Altman's The Player. He was in Pret-a-Porter as himself. And then he was in Altman's Kansas City as the movie's menacing mob boss. Back in 2015, he did receive an honorary Oscar, the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. And I'm with you, Josh, that his name should be added to a future marathon list. Let's go from Belafonte to a film that you've had a chance to catch up with that I am eager to catch up with, Christian Munju's RMN. It's currently playing in limited release, including here in Chicago. Munju is best known for his 2007 film, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. We were also fans of his 2012 film, Beyond the Hills. RMN, it turns out, is an abbreviation that translates to Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or MRI. 
the significance of which I'll let you handle, Josh. Munju's film is set in a small Transylvanian village. Work in this village is scarce. Immigrants from Sri Lanka have moved into the area, taking some of the least desirable jobs. In your letterboxed review, you suggest that Munju uses the village and its inhabitants as a representation of cultural and ethnic tensions that are being felt across Europe and beyond. We've seen Munju make political films that remain rooted in the personal. We've also seen him work in a realm that is more, you use the word supernatural in your review. Where did RMN land for you? Yeah, it's interesting. The context of that question, it's kind of somewhere in the middle, I think, from the severe reality of four months and then the also, you know, mundane reality in many ways of Beyond the Hills. But that's a movie that could also be interpreted as an exorcism film, you know. And so this is I don't want to overplay that element here. There's maybe only two scenes where that comes to the fore. Notably, though, it's in the final moments of the movie where you get a sense of something otherworldly possibly at play. There are a couple of ways to read the ending of this film for sure, but you do get a sense of the forest outside of this town where there are a number of crucial scenes being something fairy tale like, um, you know, and grim fairy tale, like not, you know, not very nice and threatening and scary. And so that stands in symbolically. In a lot of ways, um, this is this is well worth seeing. I would say, I think maybe his other two films that I've seen are a bit stronger. But just speaking to that, you know, these tensions it's exploring—that's the trick for Munju. These are things that we're also, you know, we're seeing here in America in terms of, you know, fearfulness about immigrants in particular, and how destructive and damaging and how violence can be born out of that. And yet this is very personal because it is set among a handful of characters in this specific town that we do get to know intimately. It maybe spreads itself a little thin at times in trying to do that. And you do wonder, where's this going? Whose story is this? Some of those questions arise. But man, there are also some really arresting moments. And I'll just describe one, which I'm sure you can imagine how Munju would pull this off. But there is a long meeting, town hall type meeting. And he frames it just as this single take. There's, I don't know, 30, maybe 50 people in the frame where he puts the camera. Some of the more principal characters are towards the front. And the way this has been composed so intricately so that across the 17 minutes it goes without a cut, you see multiple stories playing out at once. Because at this point, we know different characters. We know the dynamics and the interactions. And just some hand-holding that goes on, I'll just say, between two characters in particular, is high drama in the midst of this really tense debate that the townspeople are having. So some highlight moments in a film that is, yeah, maybe in my estimation, a little less than his other stuff. But then again, Four Months is like, you know, one of the great mm-hmm. ones in recent years. So definitely RMN gets recommendation for me. Oh, and I should say about the MRI thing, Basically, a character has an MRI at one point. It's not a major through line, but the way he uses the images of the scans is crucial symbolically as well. So the title RMN you're saying is not just totally random or accidental, Josh? I wouldn't say totally random and certainly not accidental. RMN is currently playing in limited release next week. The yin to Christian Munju's yang here on Film Spotting. We are returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Josh. Should be should be a little different discussion, yeah. The most dominant cultural force of the last decade or so has been a little less dominant lately. 
but volume three of one of their more reliable or at least entertaining chapters does come out next week. Guardians of the Galaxy volume three. We're both seeing it here in a couple of days as we're recording this and we'll talk about it next week, but we're also going to devote our next show to larger MCU talk. And what we realized is we're probably not alone in this, but our favorite part, maybe our favorite part, it's certainly one of our favorite parts of the MCU. It's the good villains. Yes. And we're going to highlight those good villains, the best villains, by doing an MCU villains draft. I think making it a draft will heighten the tension and the drama a yes. little bit than just doing a standard top five, top five, you know? So so I like that. I think it'll be fun. And boy, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but a lot of this is going to come down to who gets to pick first, I feel like. I think so as well. I have a bad track record. We've done three drafts, I think. One here on the show proper, two in bonus content for Film Spotting family members. Have I had the first pick yet? I haven't. I haven't had the first I... pick. And in fact, the last two times they were drafts with our producer, Sam, I was picking third in both of those cases. Yeah, that sounds right. So so you're due. You're due for that number one pick. I would like it. I would really like it in this case, but we'll have to see where the chips fall. With Guardians 3 coming out that first weekend in May, we are officially entering the summer movie season. And we've got a new poll question to that effect. We're asking you to choose one of these three highly anticipated summer movies. Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. It's got some Anderson regulars. Ed Norton, Tilda Swinton, Jeffrey Wright, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum. We could have just said those without even looking it up on IMDb. You were almost certain that they would appear. Some new faces, Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Matt Dillon, Brian Cranston, Margot Robbie, Asteroid City, Josh, I know you're crossing off the days until it comes June 16th. Cannot wait. Is there one name among those newcomers you're most intrigued to see in a Wes Anderson film? Well, first of all, how about Matt Dillon, who we just That's mentioned who I thought for the too. first time in a long time in To Die For and in a Wes Anderson film? Yeah, I don't know why he he jumped out at me. Cranston, of course, did give a vocal performance in in Isle of Dogs, but yeah, that's right. Here he'll be here he'll be on screen. But yeah, I'm very curious to see Matt Dillon to your point, and then to see him in a Wes Anderson film. We're pitting Asteroid City up against Margot Robbie, also in Greta Gerwig's Barbie. That comes out July 21st, and that same weekend, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. This sounded very familiar to me. Now. All the days blend together at this point, Josh. Time is a flat circle. Maybe I'm crazy. No, it turns out I'm not crazy. We did do a Twitter poll back in January, along with our preview of the entire movie year, that just put Barbie up against Oppenheimer. We didn't know the release date yet for Asteroid City. Back in January, Oppenheimer took the poll, but this is how close it was. 50.5% to Barbie's 49.5%. In the current Twitter poll where all three of these films are against each other. Oppenheimer is in the lead, and it's got a 10% lead over Barbie. Asteroid City actually in third over on Facebook. The contingent there has it much closer. Oppenheimer and Barbie trading leads depending on when you hit refresh. So only separated by a few votes. Is your answer going to be the answer everyone expects it to be? If you yeah. can only pick one, because that's the thing here. Sam's rules, the incinerator rules apply, essentially, 
You're only going to see one of these films. You'll never see the other two ever. Yeah. Which one do you pick? Yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have a hole in my Wes Anderson viewography. So Asteroid City, it is for me. <sighs> I love Wes Anderson. I maybe don't have him as highly ranked on my list of favorite directors as you do, but he's in the conversation. He's in the top ten, certainly. And I feel just as strongly, if not more, about Greta Gerwig after her first two films as a solo director. But something about the event that Oppenheimer seems to be. Oh. I don't think I can miss it. I'm going Nolan. Your your tenant scars have healed. They have. Wasn't a huge fan of Tenet, but we did revisit all of his films leading up to that film, Tenet. We did it as our first overview. And I think that based on some of those rewatches, Josh, I'm really eager to see what he's going to do with Oppenheimer. See his take on the biopic. You can vote in that poll now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We'll share results in a couple of weeks. As we get into some notes here, I wanted to make sure to send a thank you to those folks who came to the Film Spotting Meetup recently out in Boulder. It was the celebration after a couple days of Ebert Interruptus that I was hosting there. Honeyland, by the way, the documentary worked great for dissecting scene by scene, frame by frame. We had a blast doing that. And then a couple of Film Spotting listeners attended Interruptus and a couple of more came out just for this meetup. We talked, you know... This happens to come up a lot, especially if you've got some 90s kids in the group. We did a little Jaws versus Jurassic Park discussion. We touched on Tarkovsky. You just shut that down right away. Well, it wasn't a long conversation, right? I can tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, it, it didn't go well for me, Adam. Uh, we did touch on Tarkovsky, too. So don't worry. We got in some snobby discussion. And then I don't know how this happened, but things turned to the Mandalorian. And I, I don't know. At that point, I think it was time for everyone to go home. But I did want to say thank you uh, to each of the folks who came. It was a great group. Kevin pointed me to... Hesse Trail. We went on a hike, me and Debbie and B. I think it was the next day or the day after. And so I appreciate that, Kevin. Addy came all the way from California. It was so great to meet him. And he participated in Ebert Interruptus as well. Jonathan brought me a gift, Adam. Here I here I was, you know, while well, you were buying the beers. But here Jonathan <laughs> comes with a Pinocchio figurine from the Del Toro film. That was very thoughtful. Yeah, Melissa, however, who's been there at least one other year, she took me to task in the Jaws versus Jurassic Park conversation. She was talking about, you know, no interesting women in Jaws, right? Oh, see, and I was going to say, it's really a shame she's never seen Jaws. She should <laughs> remedy that. <laughs> I thought I had a great defense, right? I'm going I'm to I'm gonna start talking about, because we did, whenever we talk about Jaws, we talk about Ellen Brody, right? And the wonderful scenes that Lorraine Gary has, and mm -hmm. I could not pull, Melissa called me on. She goes, what's her name? I could not pull for the life of me. I might've been two beers in, in my defense. I could not pull Ellen Brody. And so I just, I had to lose. I had to take the loss on that one. Uh, Becca came along, Melissa's friend, Josh, another Interruptus vet. Good to see him. He brought his wife, Jaden. Good to meet Bob, who was telling us about these marathons he does with his friend, Best Picture Marathons, BFI Marathons. Bob has fantastic plans for getting through a bunch of movies with some great structure. And then lastly, I don't know if this will be familiar to you, Ed. I'm sure Will Eric came mentioning Eric is still active on the Film Spotting Forum as Bondo. 
Yeah, it still exists. It still exists, and he's still posting there. So good to meet Eric as well. You know, normally, right about now, I'd say something about how sad I am to have missed this meetup, but there's nothing worse than getting ganged up on by a bunch of 90s kids. I mean, I've seen the Sandlot. I, <laughs> I, I, don't, need to, I don't need to live it. <laughs> it was rough, I'll tell you. For those in the Chicago area, we did want to make sure you knew about the 10th annual Chicago Critics Film Festival. It starts Friday, May 5th, runs until the 11th. This is a festival curated by our peers in the Chicago Film Critics Association. The lineup has a lot of films that are getting their Chicago premieres after debuting at fests like Sundance and South by Southwest. All of these movies, too, are being screened at the Historic Music Box Theater. Can't find a better venue than the Music Box. You can see Christian Petzold's new film. You can see Paul Schrader's new film ahead of their release as part of this fest. I've gone through the list, Josh. There's a bunch of potential Golden Brick candidates among the roster, including the new A24 release, Past Lives, that I'm excited about. And the big one, the one I know for sure I'm going to, going to bring my son Quinn to give him an experience I never had back in the 80s. I didn't see the right stuff in the theater on 35 millimeter. I watched it at home, I think on HBO, probably as a young kid. One of my favorite all-time films as part of its 40th anniversary is going to be playing at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. It's a Monday night, sadly, but I'm not going to miss it. I don't care what day of the week they put it on. Yeah, and I'll point out another one you might want to take your kids to, a little different vein. However, this is a sequel to Ernest and Celestine, the 2014 animated doc. Very gentle, hand-drawn, wonderful animated film, and turns out there's a sequel to it. I did not realize this, but the Chicago Critics Film Festival is going to have it, and that airs at noon on Sunday, May 7. So that'll work out nicely if you want to take the family out and catch the fest. You're not familiar with the ECU? Apparently not. I've been missing out. <laughs> More information is available at chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com. Overlapping with that fest, it's an embarrassment of riches here in the Windy City. Going on May 4th through the 7th is the 8th annual Doc 10 Film Festival, Chicago's premier documentary festival. 10 of the year's best docs getting their Chicago premieres. Our friend Michael Phillips is blurbed right on the fest main page. A pocket-sized, highly pedigreed gem of a festival. Well put, as you would expect from one Michael Phillips. You can see the new film from Penny Lane, who gave us Hail Satan, her documentary Confessions of a Good Samaritan. The Disappearance of Cher Height. This is the new one from the director of Crip Camp, Nicole Noonan. Still, a Michael J. Fox movie from Davis Guggenheim and Little Richard, I Am Everything, is also playing at the fest. That's from director Lisa Cortez. I think they have Q&As with all of those filmmakers planned. Would love to be in attendance at some of these. I actually tried to see The Disappearance of Cher Height. It played at Sundance, and I bought it virtually. Tried to watch it on my TV through the whole Sundance channel thing, Josh. No dice. Mm. Some kind of technical difficulties, no matter what. Buttons I pushed in what order, and no matter how much I paid for it, I could not actually watch it. Maybe I'll get to watch it here at the Doc 10 Film Fest. More information is available at doc10.org. A couple of weeks back, Adam, we announced a giveaway from Warner Brothers, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. They were giving away three film digital bundles of classic movies, which are available for the first time on 4K Ultra 
HD. Here are the three films, The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart, Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman, and then Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. Now for a chance to win, listeners sent us in or responded on social media ranking those three stars in order. That's what they had to do. Mm -hmm. It was pretty easy for me to do this quickly. All right, here's mine. See if we match up. I went with Newman, then Bogart, then Dean. Yeah, for sure. And I'll admit, I've got at least one big James Dean blind spot. Not that he made many films, but I've seen East of Eden. Maybe that would change things, but I doubt it when we're talking about Paul Newman and Humphrey Bogart and some of the films that they've made. And we have, yeah, in some of the films they've made. But Josh, going through all of the entries, and we did get a lot of them, we've got some randomly chosen winners here who did not go with our selections. Josh, we have three, in fact, who had the same order, Bogart, then Newman, then James Dean. Sam Oppenheim is one of those winners. At Whiskey underscore 1901 via Twitter is one of those winners, as is Sean Guerrero. Sean wrote this note, Bogart has a presence for me that I cannot deny. His ease when he is on screen. The sizzling chemistry with Bacall. The realistic sensibility about him, they never attempted to age him down, given most of his iconic movies feature him much more aged than his younger co-starlets. He seemed like every man's movie star and was such a wonderful presence in the movies. Newman, fortunately, has a wider breadth of films in his filmography over James Dean, so that does bias me here. However, I love the Newman filmography from Cool Hand Luke to The Color of Money. He was always a memorable presence. And of course, speaking of memorable presences, James Dean left his mark on the movies with just three iconic films and performances. His role in Giant is one for the ages and set the template for similar roles for movies to come going forward. We have two more winners here and two different approaches to their ranking. Crystal Rolf putting Newman first and Bogart third. And Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon has Newman first, Bogart in Dean Josh. So Andrew Howell is the one who's got the same order as us, and he's got some reasoning for it. But Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Maltese Falcon are some of my favorites, so it wasn't easy. Dean just didn't have a big enough body of work. Now throw McQueen in there, and I'd have a tougher time with second place. But Newman gets my vote. Because besides having personal problems slash alcoholism, not being a great father, he was a kind and generous human being. And that's what topped my vote. Well, he was pretty cool, too. He was pretty cool. He was kind and generous. He was a pretty great actor as well. Congratulations to all of our winners. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with those digital bundles, those Warner Brothers titles, The Maltese Falcon, Cool Hand Luke, and Rebel Without a Cause are available now on 4K Ultra HD. And if you do want to take part in giveaways like this down the road, a good way to stay on top of things is to follow us on social, facebook.com slash filmspotting on Twitter, while it lasts. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two. Oh, here they are with their clever puns again, Josh. It's part two of their Shoe Me the Money pairing. <laughs> yes, Ben Affleck's heir and Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire. Pretty good. I, I approve. Pun approved. It's in the oh, title. Can, I like it. You can doff your chapeau at <laughs> that pun. I, I love it. Looking at cinema's present via its past, The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. But I wanted a child. 
Joaquin Phoenix just trying to get home to his mom in the trailer for Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid. The film expanded to about a thousand screens last weekend, at least from what we've seen on social media and over on Letterboxd. A wide range of responses to this film, a lot of polarizing takes on Ari Aster's latest before we get to our own thoughts on the film and return to our top five for our top two Joaquin Phoenix performances. We did want to take a look at the results of our recent Ari Aster-related poll. He's a filmmaker who established himself quickly with two well-received features in back-to-back years, 2018's family tragedy horror film Redditary with Tony Collette and 2019's Midsummer with Florence Pugh, whose character is in a very bad relationship and on an even worse vacation. We wanted to know which of those two films you preferred. Pretty simple. We gave you these options. Hereditary, Midsommar, or not a fan. <laughs> the Adam option. How did it come out? The Adam option. <laughs> you have uh, 21% of voters supporting take you, it. Adam. Not I'll a fan. It. Hereditary came in second place with 36%. Apparently, Midsommar is the favorite Ari Aster film among listeners with 43% it won. Film spotting family member and one or two time trivia spotting champion Ross Bratton, he'd want me to throw that in, says this, Hereditary gets my vote. Saw it in a theater twice and both times I heard the audience gasp and hold their breath during the redacted scene. It's one of the coolest in theater experiences I've ever had. You're you're sick, Ross. <laughs> Love Midsommar and Florence Pugh, but I'm riding with Tony Collette and Hereditary here. I'm with you on the vote, Ross. I, I don't know about that as being one of my coolest experiences either. Max Dricky also wrote in, while Hereditary was a revelation for me, hitting many of the same buttons that the Babadook hit so masterfully, Midsommar is my May Queen. Where Hereditary builds dreadfully towards a somewhat messy conclusion, Florence Pugh's reluctant apotheosis in Midsommar left me feeling both emotionally satisfied and deeply morally conflicted. In particular, I think the tension it probes when it comes to culture, families, and what we owe each other really resonated with me. Here's Taylor Berglund. I recently wrote an Apple podcast review of the show that referenced Midsommar and an ex-boyfriend. Yes, we did fight about this movie. He thought the only reason to shoot it in the daylight was to show off. So now we know that Apple user Blah113Blah16382 is really Taylor Berglund. Aha! <laughs> Midsommar has my heart. The longing of Pew's Danny is so palpable, and I think of longing as the main ingredient for a successful horror movie. Interesting. We want and we want and we hope and we connect, and then things turn on us. Maybe. I love so much that we don't know where to turn along for the ride with Pew. The contrast between calm and hysterical acting, the sinister in the sun, the bodies stuffed with flowers. I love it all, Taylor writes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to everyone who voted and who left a comment. You did go hereditary in the poll. I went not a fan, but hereditary if pressed. Let's see how things would have turned out if we had put his latest Bo is Afraid in the running as well. For listeners who have not seen the film, all they really need to know is it's Joaquin Phoenix's bogus journey to see his mom. I think that sums it up. <laughs> sure. Why not? I mean, it applies as well, make of it? as well as anything else. I want to know what you made of this. I want, yeah. I want to ask, you know, in the context of what we were just talking about with this poll question, I was wondering if this might possibly be your white noise. And by that, I mean, when we reviewed the Noah Baumbach film, his latest, 
I surprisingly came out of it really liking it Mm -hmm. because it was a big swing from him. And he's a filmmaker who I probably like more than you like Ari Aster, to be Mm -hmm. fair. Big fan of many Noah Baumbach films, but also ambivalent about a lot of them. Certainly not as big a fan as you are. And White Noise just took me by surprise and delighted me, as I said, because of how bonkers it was. Mm -hmm. Now, Astor's made other bonkers (laughs) films. Yeah. That's not the distinction, but I think we could say it's bonkers in a different way. Oh, yeah. I don't think you can qualify it as strictly horror. So it was one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is, um, could this be kind of your White Noise? Did it bring you over to the other side? And the other question I have to say, I have to say is, you know, is this the blankest of blank checks to cite our friends, uh, you know, at the, at a, one of our favorite podcasts? And if so, is it just blank or is there more going on here? So variations uh, there, you know, just like, I can't yeah, wait to hear problem. what you think about this one, Adam. Well, I did just come from it. So I guess that's my excuse up front here. I've had about two hours to process this insane film. You're right. It might be the blankest of blank checks. I can't wait to hear those guys discuss it at some point. Griffin and David, I wish so badly. It would be such a more interesting conversation to say that this was my white noise, that this turned me to Aster, or even that I had an extremely negative response to it. Like you're just done. I wish I was on one of those two poles with Bo is Afraid. And I understand why some people are. And I understand why some people probably aren't even going to give this one a chance based on some things they've heard about it. But if I'm being totally direct about it, if you put this in the poll question, I'm still probably going to have to say generally not a fan. And again, it's not even that I have a strong negative reaction to it. I'm just like I was with Hereditary and Midsommar. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. Something about these bonkers movies does not draw out a lot of passion in me, but it also doesn't incite much else. It doesn't incite much intellectual curiosity either. And I didn't read the entire thing. I will. I certainly want to get to it because I want to see if this is a case where having an explainer, Mm. if you will, or a film that does a real deep dive on it from someone who's really smart about film. I saw him tweet about this. Sam Adams over on slate did one of these explainers about the film and he quotes an Alyssa Wilkinson interview on Vox with Ari Aster where he says at one point it's so obviously about guilt that it's not even worth saying that and he's not in that moment from what I can gather trying to shut down anything inquisitive about the film or conversation about it he's just admitting that it's so obviously about guilt that it's almost silly to say it but I think maybe my issue with the movie Josh again a few hours removed from seeing it is that as inscrutable as it ostensibly is shutting down my curiosity is exactly what the movie does. It's obviously about guilt. It's also obviously about anxiety. It's also obviously Oedipal. So what's left for us to really chew on or explore? I mean, references to the Odyssey, the way it, Apes, Lynch, and Von Trier, those are the two filmmakers I had in mind a lot watching this movie. You're kind of watching it aware as you go that there are going to be so many Easter eggs that you could pull out and dissect on future viewings if you wanted to do that. 
because he packs everything with so much information. There's so many symbols and signs, literal signs, metaphorical signs, you name it, all over this film. It's as if this is this hermetically sealed world. It's a universe unto itself. And you know that everything you see happen references something that has happened before or is going to happen in the future and maybe both. And yet I still kind of felt like maybe all of those signs and symbols and all the references and what qualifies as jokes in Bo is Afraid might just be really amusing to Ari Aster, <laughs> like a dream you're recounting, or in this case, a nightmare you're recounting to someone, but not so amusing to me. I'm, I'm not the one who, after seeing this film, feels as if I can't wait to go back and really try to make sense of this all. And you know, a movie that I was thinking about as well as I was watching Bo is Afraid is I'm thinking of ending things from Charlie Kaufman, except that's mm -hmm. exactly the type of movie where I did feel like I wanted to put in the work. I wanted to think about the bigger ideas the movie was provoking. All the big ideas in Bo is Afraid are, are just right out there for you to <laughs> reckon with right from the jump. I don't know. I don't know what there is as far as work for me to do now that I've stepped out of the theater. What about you? Yeah, I don't know if obviousness is maybe the problem for you. Um, and, and I would just say real quick that the Kaufman film for me was Synecdoche, New York. You know, that mm. that's kind of the one that's it's um, it's an artist trying to process their distressed life through their art. Right. With Seymour Hoffman's theater director mounting this elaborate stage production of, of his miserable life. And it reminds me of what Tony Collette's character was trying to do in Hereditary as making these models, these dioramas. You know, she's also an artist. The dioramas, she's not getting her real work done because she's obsessed with these dioramas of her own house with her own family, trying to control these family dynamics by reducing them to size. I found then here, Bo is Afraid, is Ari Aster going macro, <laughs> like trying to process these anxieties by giving us a three-hour movie on a giant screen. And so that on its surface was kind of interesting to me. But yeah, I think it's more, not that the ideas are obvious, but it's the Ebert thing. It's it's not what it's about, but how, it's how it's about it, right? And so mm -hmm. if how Aster has chosen to explore this is not intriguing you, amusing you, provoking you, then it doesn't really matter what it's about. And honestly, this is the sort of movie that I think deserves a million explainers that's absolutely an impulse you have debbie went to me with this and as soon as we were walking out she was like i think she found something on vulture you know that's like explaining every element in the film you could totally do that it's also to your point a movie that doesn't need to be explained at all right. i mean bo's mm -hmm. therapist in one of the very first scenes writes down on his notepad guilt or guilty one of those one of those two words right so yeah it's all there so that goes back to my point are you intrigued in any way by the methods Aster is using to explore these anxieties, these fears? And I can just say I was. I found this quite funny. I found the scale of it to be impressive. I found it thought-provoking to think about, to consider 
what fear of this character is being explored in this section, because this is very much a movie about distinct sections. And so we get a sense that Bo is, I mean, he's afraid of a ton of stuff, right? He's afraid of his health, of having health complications. He's afraid of sex. He's afraid of macho men. He's afraid of conniving teenagers. And yeah, we've touched on it. Above all, he's afraid of disappointing his mother. I will say maybe towards the end, concentrating everything down to his mother, who mm-hmm. is played by Zoe Lister-Jones when she's younger and Patti LuPone when she's older. I can see that being, you know, some people thinking that's too easy or reductive or, okay, at the end of all this, we're just getting a Mommy Issues movie. I understand that. Maybe that is a bit limiting. But still, the canvas that we have here and the humor also, mostly in that opening section where Mm -hmm. he is living in this urban nightmare, which here's an interesting thing to think about, though, Adam, is, you know, he's going through trying to get from his therapist's office to his apartment. He has to dodge, you know, just it's like idiocracy in a way (laughs) is what we're seeing. Meets escape from New York. Yeah, exactly. And each frame is packed with gags Uh and jokes. And some of them are like, it's really dark humor. Like there's a body he has to jump Uh over that's obviously been laying there for three or four days. And you wonder what has happened to this, you know, this society. Here's an interesting question is like, how much of that is real? How much of that is reflective of Bo's inner life? Like, is he, is this heightened in his head? And the other thing that I think is interesting is what we're getting here is exactly the sort of thing that alarmist like news reports tell us is happening in every urban (laughs) city in America, right? If you lived outside of an urban center and watched certain news reports, you would think this is what it looks like to live in Chicago. And so I think there's some societal commentary going on here that is interesting as well. So all that to say is I found enough things to grab onto that intrigued me all the way through, even though I don't think this is like 2001 that needs to be unpacked (laughs) for for all its hidden meanings. And of course, if it did provoke those thoughts or questions in you, that's great. I don't know that I could say Ari Aster cares one bit (laughs) about making any kind of socio-political commentary because this movie is so wrapped up in its own extremely idiosyncratic and personal concerns. Neuroses. Right? And, Absolutely. And, and that's concern neuroses, number one. That's, yeah, that's that's the word. And is it effective in putting you in that neurotic, very intense headspace? Absolutely. I mean, in this this nightmare fantasy – There are almost no interactions or exchanges that are imbued with any compassion. I mean, anything that seems to be compassionate, it turns out (laughs) there's a there's a reason for it or there's a motive or it's going to turn everything that happens in this film. Almost everything that happens is a full on assault on this character or is perceived to be or it's just a brief prelude to an assault. I don't think any of it's real. That opening scene with his therapist feels like the closest thing to a quote unquote actual scene that could be taking place. And we find out that he's on medication. Maybe this is all something that's provoked by that new medication, even though he's determined to take it with water, like he was warned (laughs) to do. Right. But the film even suggests, I think you're right. I think he writes down guilty. I think think it might be guilty. He writes down guilty, which tells you this isn't a real therapist. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they they would never pass that judgment like that, or they're not supposed to anyway. And that's all he puts on the note card. This is a completely invented 
insane, absurd world. Whether it's all in his head, whether anything's quote unquote really happening to the character or not, I don't think matters at all. And that's actually something I do appreciate about the film. I appreciate Astor's commitment to this absurd universe that he's created. And Josh, it had enough of an impact on me. This is gonna sound so dumb, but I'm telling you this this really happened and I'm telling you how it made me feel in the moment. It's so dumb. But I'm watching this film where every time he turns his head, it feels like someone's attacking him or something negative and terrible is happening to him. Something is going wrong. Something is not what it seems to be or should be. I decide about halfway through, maybe I'm, I'm too tense. I decide I'm going to get some popcorn. I'm going to get some popcorn and a drink. I get up. I get the popcorn. I get the drink. I want to put a little butter on my popcorn. They're never seen this before. There are people underneath the butter counter doing some kind of maintenance on it. None of the butter dispensers work. Okay. <laughs> Attack number one. I go, I go to the pop machine. I fill my drink. I start walking back to the theater. I have a mishap and spill my pop all over the floor. I decide that I need to go back and get some napkins. And I also need to get a new lid and I need a straw. Josh, it's the middle of the day at a theater. There's like 12 people in the entire theater. I think three in my bow is afraid screening. I walk back. I was just there and got a lid. There are no lids. There are no napkins. There are no straws. It it was as if I entered the world of Bo is Afraid. I felt as if I'd walked out of the theater and walked into his world where everything was against me. And I actually just decided, yeah, this is... This is the way it is. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe that there are no lids in any of those dispensers, but it somehow made sense to me because I had just walked out of that theater. I said, I'll just have to drink my pop. I don't need a lid. I just, I just won't spill this time as I walk away. So it had an impact on me. And I, I will give Aster that credit. AMC is doing their version of Smell of Vision mm. or something, Josh. They're they're antagonizing all of their patrons. I think, I think this is what you get for being so unprofessional is to leave a, a movie leave in the it. middle of it, Adam. I never for do snacks. it too. I honestly never do it. I <laughs> always, if I'm going to get any snacks, I get them before the the movie things starts. the things Ari Aster drives you to. I know, I know. But <laughs> let me say this about what you said in terms of how it is about it. I discovered a bit of information after the fact that validated a thought I had watching it. And that thought was, wow, I think I would love watching this as a short film. And it turns out it was originally a short. Aster, I think, made a film back in 2011 or something called Bo. That's where this all started. And I'm not saying that as a jab on its length, the fact that it's two hours and 59 minutes long. It's because of the inherent provocativeness that a short film or a novella can offer where as someone consuming that you're less interested in logic perhaps and you really are more caught up in the visceral experience of it and what the imagery suggests and what the sound and all those things suggest i think this canvas this canvas just maybe wasn't the right one for me with this material well, okay, speaking of canvas, and you mentioned how it felt assaultive, I think you said, which I agree with. 
by the way. I mean, I can totally. I mean, it's a series of them. Yeah, I experienced that as well. But what did you make about, there was a little interlude for me, the animated interlude. This is, comes when Bo encounters members of, you know, an interactive theater troupe in a forest, maybe something else we should all be afraid of. I don't know, but it's a rather idyllic experience for him. He's watching this lovely stage production, which has some incredible design to it. Those, Mm -hmm. those rotating trees to resemble the changes of the season. He gets lost in this narrative about a man trying to find his place, and we segue into this animated section. And, and just want to credit the animators here, Cristobal Leon and Joaquin Cosina. And it's lovely. It's it's a storybook aesthetic that they use, and Phoenix as a live actor is placed within it. Now it takes a dark turn <laughs> within that section as well. But I did find that to be a small moment of relief. What what did yeah. you make of that whole section? No, you're right. I mean, when I say this film is mostly a series of assaults, that's that's an intermission from it. That's a little bit of a reprieve from that, though even within that story, we get some moments where that character, the character within the story that we see Joaquin Phoenix inhabiting or we see Bo inhabiting, he still is the victim yeah. of some pretty harsh conditions and some harsh treatment by the people that he comes up against. And then, as you said, it all ends very badly and very violently, but I'm with you. I get, I get what you're saying as far as that part. And I think I can say I enjoyed it though. I'm still not completely sure how I want to tie that all back to what follows or what I think the film is really concerned with. It's also notable, you mentioned Synecdoche, New York. That's another real parallel, where the the stage performance yes. on a bunch of levels is mirroring a moment that a character is having in the audience, seeing himself perform back to him, right, in that fashion. Absolutely. So there are a lot of rabbit holes like that in this film, and some are more fun to go down than others. I really did, as I said, like that opening a lot, the, the dance, the maze of hell that he has to go through to get back to his apartment. And I, I did really like the opening, Josh. I thought that was so evocative that the opening of this film, it's darkness. We hear sound and we start to realize after a short amount of time that we're about to get ushered into this world the same way Bo, the man is ushered Mm -hmm. into the world. He is inside the womb And he's getting sloshed around and he's about to come out. And you just hear what the mom is saying. You hear her anxiety. Now it's all heightened. It's heightened beyond what you usually get in a Hollywood film, a depiction of a birth that's usually way too intense and people are screaming and panicking. She really is panicking and causing a lot of anxiety and stress. The kid hasn't even come out yet. Right. And we hear that torment. And then he does come out. So he's brought into this world that is instantly defined by trauma. Yeah. It's... <laughs> and, and that sets the tone for everything that follows in this movie. It's, it's hellish from the start for poor Bo. So we got to, we got to at least say something about Phoenix. What would you make uh, of the performance here? He's, he's similar to your pick in you were never really here. Big swollen. I think you said, right. And, mm-hmm. The camera, Astro's camera, definitely pays attention to that, where these shots looking at him, you know, from below looking up at him or from behind, his broad back fills the whole frame. But it's not in a powerful sense, which you get from that film, I think. Here you get mm-hmm. 
sort of lethargic and um, immobility came to mind, right? right? Just like he's stuck in his life, his body seems physically stuck as well. Yeah, I think that's all fair. And I think it's a performance that literally asks him to suffer a lot. And it also requires him to do a lot of reacting. Think about how much of this film is him responding to those assaults and responding with pain, but also him just looking at people. Phoenix is one of our best actors when it comes to having to just react and have a horrified response to something. Think about how many times, even in the scene you picked from Inherent Vice, there's a great moment of that where Josh Brolin starts inexplicably eating the the dope (laughs) leaves, right? And we see his eyes get big and yeah. that big facial reaction where he he almost doesn't know what he's experiencing. Is this real? Is this really happening in this moment? That that reaction shot from Inherent Vice is this movie for three hours. <laughs> he's he's in various degrees of strickenness. He and, is. And it's just watching the eyes. And he get, makes that interesting. What, he does he does make it interesting. I would say he also makes it funny. Um, you know, there's a recurring thing in Astor's films of people howling in despair and their mouths mm-hmm. just open wide in this really yep. uncomfortable way. There is a moment later in the film where Bo is hobbling away from some other trauma. I won't say what, but his neck is like contorted to the side and his mouth is open as if he's howling like an Astor howl, but you don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. It's the most, it's the most disturbing yet hilarious expression. It, it's almost like he's achieving rigor mortis as, right. as he's walking. And I do think that Phoenix is playing this largely as a comic performance without, without making fun of Bo. And I don't think the movie is making fun of Bo or laughing at him at all. It's, it's too it's too wired closely to his own head to do that. Yeah. Look, I just can't get that worked up about a movie that is this knowingly absurd. The entire story, what there is of a story is based around two jokes about the length the mother will go to maintain control over her son. One related to his character, something he believes defines him as a person and one that is about the journey he's on, where he's going, and why he's trying to get there. And if you really think about them for a second, you realize that they could be punchlines in a joke if someone was just using them as punchlines to talk about their domineering mother. Astor built an entire film around them, a three-hour movie around these two jokes. So I may not love it, but I also I can't be mad at it, Josh. I can't be. All right. We'll take what we can get. Bo's Afraid is currently in theaters. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Let's get back to our top five Joaquin Phoenix characters. I did consider Bo for this list. I thought he was that good, Josh, but didn't quite make the cut. We're down to our final two favorites. Real quick, you want to remind folks what you had at five, four, and three? Yeah, number five was an early performance, Jimmy Emmett in To Die For. Number four was Meryl Hess in Signs. And number three was Larry Doc Sportello from Inherent Vice. And number five, I had Commodus from Gladiator. Number four, Leonard Creditor from Two Lovers, the James Gray film. And Joe was my number three from Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. We do have two more. A reminder, 
We set her and Theodore aside, although we both love those performances. We're going to talk about that movie coming up soon in some bonus content for Film Spotting family members. What do you have at number two? This might be where you want to go get some more popcorn and and something to drink. Maybe look for a lid, an Uh elusive lid, because it's Arthur Fleck in Joker. I do think that Phoenix has a talent, above all, for miserableness. And to me, this is one of his most fascinating ones, Arthur Fleck. The movie itself, we don't need to relitigate it. I know I'm one of the few people who take it seriously. I'll say I still feel okay about that a couple years on. I think we've only seen more disgruntled individuals lashing out at society Um, that hasn't lightened up in recent years. So I think this movie resonates in that way. And I also think that is what connects with Phoenix's performance. Arthur Fleck is both a symptom and a symbol of societal breakdown in Joker. And that is something that Phoenix communicates through a performance of operatic physicality. So yeah, I like the movie. There's a lot there. But for me, it's Phoenix who is the centrifugal force. And I am mesmerized by his carefully choreographed but seemingly chaotic clumsiness in this movie. That's also what makes this a somewhat funny performance. I think of him running down the streets or hallways, his limbs all askew. He's not, but he might as well be wearing clown shoes. That's that's how he runs. I think about him slipping and fumbling with the gun on the subway in that sequence where he's trying to defend himself from his attackers. And then, yeah, the dance on those steps I love so much. The dance and then his comic scrambling away when the cops come interrupt him and undercut the whole scene. Now, as outward as so much of this is Phoenix, this is the thing he does. We've touched on a number of times. He internalizes all of this as well. So you're getting both. He's using physicality to convey an internal brokenness. And we get another man whose, whose wires just seem to be crossed. And in this movie, he's stuck in a society that doesn't care at all to even bother trying to uncross them. Until a while ago, it was like nobody ever saw me. Even I didn't know if I really existed. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts, but you don't listen anyway. I said, for my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed, but I do. And people are starting to notice. I heard from Anton Varfort uh, over on Twitter who said, Joker is good. I think there is a vulnerability or maybe even something damaged. There it is to Joaquin that makes him work especially well in those kind of roles. I don't think the movie was amazing, but it wasn't just a king of comedy ripoff. So, yep, I'm going with Arthur Fleck. My number two, I think, you know, technically, if we were including her, I'd probably have it up this high and Joker would be at three. But for now. It's my number two Joaquin Phoenix performance. Yeah, let's just go ahead and keep this positive. I'm not going to rehash any of my comments <laughs> about not only the film, but actually it turns out I, I didn't even really like Joaquin Phoenix's performance. and Terrible, that, terrible, That to Adam. me, especially after preparing for this list, is genuinely unthinkable because I think he can pull off the impossible and yet Joker 
was too much for Joaquin Phoenix in this case. I've got at number two, a performance that you already mentioned. Some crossover here, Paul Thomas Anderson, Larry Doc Sportello from Inherent Vice, which contains what is still probably my funniest moment in any Paul Thomas Anderson film when early in the movie, he's talking to Jenna Malone's character at her kitchen table. She's recounting her heroin use and getting pregnant. She shows a picture of little Amethyst, which Phoenix's doc responds to this way. This is what we had her looking like. Everybody hopefully pointed out how the heroin was actually coming through my breast milk. But... Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that I've seen one used myself in the wild, but not surprisingly, if you search Inherent Vice Scream or Joaquin Phoenix Screaming, all the gifts pop up. <laughs> this is a ready-made <laughs> meme moment, but it's really brilliant acting. I mean, Malone, she doesn't flinch at all when he screams like that. She does say, I don't know if you have the stomach for it before she hands him the photo. So she knows that the picture is horrifying because she was breastfeeding, but using heroin at the time, but it's still her baby. And you still expect that Doc Sportello will react by repressing whatever his instinctual reaction is. You actually think he'll do what he does right after he screams, which is he looks again at the photo, even though he doesn't want to. He looks again at the photo, almost like he's he's assessing it. And he says, mm-hmm. And he's very clinical about it, but he he can't help it. He's so horrified, he lets out that scream. And then it just immediately closes up. And I laugh every time I see it. And I do just love this gumshoe character who's in, as you said, this labyrinthine pension world of early 70s L.A. in the setup to our review of this film, I described it this way. I said, take the big Lebowski's perpetually stone protagonist, add the anachronistic absurdity and culture clashing of Altman's The Long Goodbye, mix in the borderline nonsensical plot machinations of The Big Sleep, and top it all off with the pervasive corruption of Chinatown. That's what you get with this film. And there's some pretty strong touchstones there. Not surprising that I love this movie as much as I do. And I think... One of his real gifts, we've talked about a few of them, is that he's able to embody these characters who do kind of straddle these different these different worlds. He so naturally exudes being a man out of time, even literal time with this character and others in terms of the the pace of his movements, his manner of speaking. He always moves at his own pace and often doesn't verbally respond in moments that you think a walking Phoenix character would he's, he's processing, he's experiencing it. You experience it in real time with Phoenix's character. So I'm with you in my appreciation. I have it even higher. Doc Sportello at number two, a lot of processing going on by Doc. A in lot that movie. of processing. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and that, that brings us to our number one, which is not a surprising pick, but we think it's the right pick obviously, and it's a joint number one pick. There there can only be one here. If we're talking about Phoenix, and it turns out if we're talking about Phoenix and Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I mean, in The Master is Freddie Quell. It's a character you immediately know when you first see him in that movie. You're not going to take your eyes off him, partly because you don't want him out of your sight for what he will do. 
if he's out of your your range of vision. So discomforting, so unnerving. Maybe the character that tests the theory the most of Phoenix somehow still attracting the audience's interest and sympathy. I think Freddie Quell pushes that the most, and it's only maybe having Philip Seymour Hoffman's master as something of an antagonist that allows that to happen. I think once we see how Freddie is being manipulated a little bit, we maybe begin to feel a little more sorry for him, but this is a broken, dangerous, scarred man. And I remember my first impression of the master, a movie I've revisited a number of times, but coming away from it, that first screening was Phoenix's face and what he did Mm -hmm. to it. I don't know how he transformed physically so much you know we talk about losing weight gaining weight for actors i wrote his face was withered and worn particularly when he scowls it's almost as if his cleft lip has spread so that rivulets now also cross his cheeks his brow his chin and that also is a physical manifestation again of what's inside it's like all Mm -hmm. of this torture is bubbling and seeping out and it's coming out in his face. It's also coming out in how Freddie walks, how Phoenix carries himself. I want to get to this when we talk about his performance in her. Um, there's some interesting examples of just, you know, his gait as an actor, and mm-hmm. we see it here mm-hmm. more than anywhere else, I think. It's just this mask of torment that Phoenix wears and spreads to the rest of his body. Um, And of course, it it does explode into violent physicality at times. I think one of the movie's first indications of this is that incredibly odd and uncomfortable scene where Freddie is working as a photographer at the department store when he gets back from the war and he just lets his rage seep out into this passive-aggressive session with a client. I'm starting to sweat. You need to shut up. You need to move the gun. You need to shut up. You need to back off. Sit down. I'm very sorry. I'm trying to get the lighting right. You must understand. You want to get the lighting right. You can hear the simmering confrontation there, but there's also, of course, in what Phoenix does. Again, the actions. There's the slow shoving of that hot lamp towards the man's face. Mm-hmm. Then the choke-like tightening of, of the tie. And of course, again, that scowling look he has at the very beginning of the scene, just utter disdain for this guy. You know he hates this man. We could speculate on the reasons. I I think the movie goes on to give us a few of them. But immediately, Freddie Quell hates this man. It's going to go badly for him. So yeah, I'm with you. Master, crowning achievement at this point in his career. Just a perfect marriage uh, of the physical and the psychological that he's he's so good at. Rewatching that scene today, I don't think it's an accident that the actor, if you look closely, the actor really resembles Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lancaster Dodd. Yeah, you're right. He? So it's it's foreshadowing the relationship he's going to have with that man as well, Lancaster Dodd. And we do get this seemingly unprovoked response, this disdain for this character. But it all starts when he asks him, about who it's for. He says it's for his wife. This is mm-hmm. this is the virile American male who is the domesticated version of a man that Freddie Quell can never be. Right. And it makes sense on some level that then that's going to be his instinctive response 
to him. And this movie is dealing with a lot of those subjects and those themes in a way that is not spelled out. But I really feel that Freddie Quell is carrying the burden of post-war America on his shoulders, on his pretty slight shoulders here. Yeah. Very thin and way more frail coming back from the war. And the way I described his character at the time was he's like an arthritic fist. Mm. You know, he's he's just crumpled up. Crumpled. And we see it in that That's scene. Good. It's as if every part of him is in pain. And I think he does remark at some point that he's got stomach pain, but you watch him in that scene when he's getting the camera ready. Freddie Quell acts as if he's perpetually experiencing heartburn, a terrible taste in his mouth. It is as if he is always suffering or experiencing some pain. And you watch his mannerisms in that scene or throughout the movie as Freddie. I really think a lot of lesser actors who tried to embody that character, tried to evoke those feelings and the type of phrasing that we're summoning here, they would make him overly theatrical. They would make him feel like a character. It wouldn't feel natural and it wouldn't have the power that it has. The the putting his hand on his hips, the the slouching that he does with his shoulders in, the the facial reactions, all the things we're saying. Phoenix makes it feel almost like Freddie Quell may have come out of the womb that way. <laughs> to go back to Bo is afraid. We know that's probably not the case. That that the war and his experiences there had to shape him somewhat into, if not completely, into the man that we see now, this broken man that we see now. But he makes it feel as if this is his life experience, and we don't ever, we don't ever question it. I never questioned it. No in his performance. You you'd pass this guy in the street. I, you know that's that's like a very basic litmus test you can give to any sort of reality based performance. At least, can I yeah. imagine myself passing this guy in the street? And in Freddie Quell's case, absolutely. And you would know by all of those things you described Phoenix doing, that communicates you'd want to step aside, right? For, it's just mm-hmm. like this, chances are I'll pass this guy, it'll be fine. Chances just are more energy. likely it won't be. Yeah, even if he's not being assaultive himself in no, this no. moment. How he's carrying himself. It's just the energy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> those are our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances any honorable mentions, Josh, that you'd like to throw in? Yeah, I think we should get to this one because I saw this come up a lot on social media. People are big fans of the film Come On, Come On and his performance as Johnny. This is from writer-director Mike Mills, and this is another nice guy, Phoenix, role, right? He's mm-hmm. this single, kind of emotionally reserved uncle of a young boy, and he ends up caring for the boy while his mother and father are going through this difficult patch. The boy's played by Woody Norman. They have great chemistry together. Um, and it's a very generous and light turn, I think, that is as good as the other stuff he's done, maybe just not, isn't the epitome to me of what Phoenix is like, so didn't quite make the cut. So should I call you like Papa or Dad or just Johnny? You can call me whatever feels comfortable to you. I, I, I don't know. It's just I'm not used to being able to choose. Maybe we can just take this process slowly and and, and see, see how it feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just really sorry that your children died. Um, you know, I don't think I can do that part. 
Yeah, I, I told you that's how me and mom do it. If it makes sense for your mom to do that, that's cool, but it doesn't make sense for me, and that's what oh, I was explaining to you. Why does it make sense for you? Because it's, it's ridiculous. Is it? It's sad. Yeah, I really do like that performance as well. Already mentioned your pick, Jimmy Emmett, in To Die For. I also really like Jacques Odiar's Western, where he plays opposite John C. Riley as one of the sisters' brothers. He's Charlie's sisters. I think that's an underrated film, underrated Joaquin Phoenix performance, where you've got a guy who we've talked about loves to subvert our expectations about what masculinity looks like on screen, and here he's putting maybe the most macho of genres, the Western. And he really does exhibit a lot of those characteristics that a male, a macho male of that time probably would have needed to. And yet when he gets slapped, he still kind of screeches a little bit when he gets slapped by his brother, you know, he's incredulous. Like he can't believe that he hurt him. So I do really like that performance. I think he's really good as clay in clay pigeons. And even though I think the movie is just okay, Of course, I like watching him as Johnny Cash in Walk the Line, so I'll give some love to that performance as well. Again, those are our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. You can find all of our picks, links to the scenes we played, and more at filmspotting.net. Our top five archive is accessible just by clicking on lists. And that's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead a couple of weeks to our summer movie preview. We're asking you to choose one and only one summer release. Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, or Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. You only get to see one of them, which would it be? For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as $5 a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free, plus a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. Our April bonus show, which will be coming out just a little bit after the calendar ticks into May, but it is coming. Spike Jones's Her at 10 years old. Film Spotting family members, Josh, have access to our complete archive, depending on which benefit tier they choose and we talked about her originally back in january 2014 that was on a fixed episode where it wasn't a full show but we had two big releases we wanted to talk about how about this pairing her and inside lewin davis for me oh man two five-star movies came out at the same time i I had not remembered that that's pretty incredible walk the line previously mentioned was episode 56 of film spotting back in 05 a very memorable intro to I'm Still Here on episode number 317. And we've reviewed The Master, The Immigrant, Inherent Vice, You Were Never Really Here, The Sisters, Brothers, Joker, and more, along with reviews of Ari Aster's Midsommar on episode 736, Hereditary on 685. And you can go back to episode 198, Josh, to hear us talk about Christian Munju's Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, along with a review of In Bruges. Why not? Hmm. Okay. That's filmspottingfamily.com. Out streaming this weekend, you can see Peter Pan and Wendy. Is this really directed by David Lowry? It is, which is one of the main reasons I'm going to try to check it out. Disney Plus is where you can do that. In wide release, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Big George Foreman, the miraculous story of the once and future heavyweight champion of the world. The Black Demon. And I just love reading this plot description as if it's not this actor's character. 
I just want to imagine that a megalodon shark targets Josh Lucas and his family. The movie becomes way more interesting. It's meta. It like it's that. meta. You're saying Josh meta. Lucas exactly. went on a family vacation. This happened to him. That's right. Also, Sisu, our friend Robert Daniels, calls it a pulpy, blood-soaked World War II spaghetti western. It's from a Finnish filmmaker, and Robert says it's hella violent with deliciously inventive kills. More deliciously inventive than a megalodon shark targeting Josh <laughs> Lucas and his family? Robert, we'll see. Star Wars Return of the Jedi is also re-released in theaters upon its 40th anniversary. But next week here on Film Spotting, we're going to do our MCU Villains Draft, and we're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.